We're spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show with Dr. Samuel Myers, who is a principal research scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the founding director of the Planetary Health Alliance. And in the next few minutes, we are going to be exploring this intriguing and important concept of planetary health, how the health of our planet and everything around us has everything to do with our own health as well as as human beings and collectively as as the human race and uh the the book at hand planetary health protecting nature to protect ourselves explores some of the ways in which we are connected with the planet itself and the biosphere uh often in ways that we are not even particularly aware of and the fact that as humankind continues to progress in all kinds of exciting ways and in many beneficial ways. There are also all kinds of ways in which that progress is detrimental to the planet on which we live. And ultimately, uh, some of those detriments, uh, in fact, even now, are beginning to really catch up to us. And more and more, those detriments are going to cancel out the very progress that, uh, that all of us want uh, for ourselves and those we care about. That is what is explored uh, in this uh, important book, which is published by uh, Island Press, which is a very significant uh, nonprofit press that shares all kinds of significant books with with the world, including this one, again titled Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. This book is actually co-edited by Dr. Myers and by Howard Frumkin and gathers together uh, the writing of a distinguished panel of experts in a variety of fields. Dr. Samuel Myers, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. I am excited to uh, talk with you about this. I think it would be interesting to get a little background on who you are uh, and your own sort of professional history. One of the things that you say, I think it might be in the acknowledgments, uh, in talking about you and your co-editor, Howard Frumkin, you say, we both trained in medicine and public health, but our intellectual journeys have taken us far afield uh, from uh, ecology to agronomy, from urban and transportation planning to, to earth science. Uh, your your own kind of uh, intellectual journey, as you describe it, has has taken you far afield. Uh, describe a little more about that and 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 how that has happened. Sure. Well, um, you know, I'm not I'm not a poster child for a linear career path. So I've I've been sort of wandering around trying to really understand the synthesis between global environmental change and human health for most of my career in a variety of different ways. And in some ways, it's really the story of perpetually kind of moving upstream. So um, as an undergraduate, I was really interested in medicine and sort of human biology and physiology, but I was also uh, very interested in environmental science and the natural world and um, was already sort of wondering how they might be interconnected and uh, went to medical school uh, at Yale, where there's an excellent school of forestry and environmental science and spent a lot of my time 
there. I went to University of California in San Francisco for my internal medicine residency, but midway through residency, through sort of a variety of of, uh, of coincidences, ended up um, being invited to go to Tibet and lead an integrated conservation and human health project on the north side of Mount Everest for two years, and um, ultimately ended up deciding to go ahead and do that and left residency for two years and uh, then came back and finished residency. So um, after that, I was at USAID for two years in the Global Health Bureau and a conservation organization, Conservation International, uh, running the Healthy Communities Initiative, which also looked at the intersection of uh, environmental conservation and natural resource management with health. Um, And so really for six years, I was exploring this intersection of human health and environmental change more at the project level in communities all around the world. Um, And, you know, ultimately got really, really interested in the need to build a whole field that uh, really explored how our transformation of nature, how our disruption and degradation of all of our natural systems was coming back to pose what's really an urgent uh, global health threat um, in the extent to which our own health and well-being is imperiled by our transformation of nature. And so I came back to Harvard and did my Master's of Public Health and a research fellowship, and I've been doing a lot of research uh, on how changing natural systems actually affects different dimensions of human health for different populations around the world. Um, And somewhere along the way, I also uh, founded the Planetary Health Alliance, which has been growing rapidly over the last five years and now includes about 240 organizations in over 40 countries that are all coming together in support of this new field of planetary health. Mm. I wonder if we could spend a, a, a couple of minutes at least talking about that that very term, planetary health, and uh, you you devote some time to kind of helping us understand the background of it. And if I understand correctly, the term is relatively new. If I remember correctly, it was I think yep. you say something about being coined right around the year 2010. But but actually, the concept uh, that it represents is. Is, uh, is is a concept that has been around a long time and explored in a lot of different ways. I think at one point you say it has both a short and a very long history. Give us some background on, on this term of planetary health and what is behind those words. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I think you can go to a lot of um, – faith traditions and indigenous uh, knowledge systems around the world and find concepts of interconnectedness with nature and natural systems that go back, you know, thousands of years. And so the idea that our well-being is um, sort of tied to um, the health of our natural systems is not a new idea. But in other ways, planetary health is a very new field. And in fact, it was really only five years ago in 2015 that the term planetary health kind of came into 
public parlance with the publication of a big uh, Rockefeller Lancet commission report in the Lancet in July of 2015. It was really when when that term started to be popularized. And in a lot of ways, it's it's a field that has emerged in response to a moment. And I think we're in uh, really a unique moment in human history. And what characterizes that moment is the scale and pace of our transformation of nature. And a lot of people understand that, you know, we are and have been for decades sort of affecting you know, environmental conditions, whether it's the climate system or biodiversity or pollution, um, people understand that environmental uh, disruption is a problem. But what very few people understand is the extraordinary sort of scale and pace of that transformation and the extent to which it's actually a relatively new phenomenon. If you look back at, say, 1950 or 1960, and you look at global patterns of human consumption, whether it's you know, proliferation of cars and trucks or appropriation of water resources or production and use of synthetic fertilizers or paper production or plastic production or primary energy use, what you see is very, very similar curves with pretty modest consumption patterns up until about 1950. And then this really deep, almost exponential acceleration in uh, in global human consumption. And not surprisingly, if you look at metrics of our impact on natural systems, so biodiversity loss or global deforestation or addition of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, you see, again, very, very similar patterns. And the reason they're all so similar is that they're all underlain by these two fundamental processes. One is uh, human population growth. So the human population was about two and a half billion in 1950, and now it's well over seven billion. So it's been growing very rapidly. And per capita consumption, the amount of goods and services that each one of us asks our planet to, to provide for us has been growing even more steeply than population. And when you multiply those two things together to get of global GDP, you know, the total sum of what we're asking the planet to provide, you see this nearly vertical line that we're on that around 1950 just starts to rise very, very, very steeply. And as a result, our sort of total human enterprise, the sum total of all our collective activities is now really outstripping our planet's capacity to absorb our wastes or provide the resources that we're using sustainably. And so we're, we're disrupting all of these systems, whether it's the climate system, biodiversity loss, global changes in land use, pollution of air and water and soil, uh, resource scarcity of fresh water and arable land. All of these things are changing really at the fastest rates in the history of our species. And they're interacting with each other in complex ways that we're just starting to understand, but that affect the sort of core conditions for human health and well-being, the, the quality of the air we breathe, the quality of water we drink, uh, the quantity and quality of food that we can produce, exposure to infectious diseases, exposure to extreme weather events, even the habitability of the places that we live, 
And so every dimension of human health is being impacted. And so planetary health is arising out of this moment. We often say we're a community forged in urgency um, in response to these relatively new threats to to our own health and well-being. Right. At one point in the book, you describe this as an extraordinary ballooning of humanity's ecological footprint. Uh, so in other words, the impact that we are having on this planet uh, has grown right along with uh, some of the achievements and accomplishments that have made life undeniably better for more and more people, but at a cost that we have not uh, fully gauged or grasped. And and that cost is going to begin, and even now, uh, is overtaking uh, some of that progress, which is... Uh, or has been so important. I mean, it is a cost that we cannot continue to bear. Well, I think that's exactly right, and there's no question there have been huge improvements in most metrics of human development over the last 70 years. But um, what we're recognizing is that the trajectory that has taken us from here to there uh, is a fundamentally unsustainable trajectory. And so um, we're not in any way advocating sort of rolling back the clock, um, but what we're advocating is finding a way to maintain and extend those gains, um, but at the same time significantly reduce our ecological footprint. And that process is what we've been calling the great transition, but it requires um, some pretty serious uh, commitment to doing most of the things that we do uh, in different ways. Mm. We're speaking with Dr. Samuel Myers about uh, the book that he has co-edited with Howard Fremkin entitled Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. Um, we should not probably spend a whole lot of time on this, but uh, early in the book and in a, an epilogue that was written uh, just before the book was published, you touch on... Uh, the recent phenomenon of COVID-19. And uh, the reason you take the time to talk about it is because of its relevance to much of what you talk about. Uh, and you state uh, quite emphatically that uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is a prototypical planetary health story. In other words, it, it really... Uh, clearly exemplifies much of what you explore in this book and many of the concerns raised by the Planetary Health Alliance. Uh, explain uh, to our listeners uh, what some of these connections are or what it is that we can learn from this COVID-19 uh, pandemic in terms of the health of our planet and ourselves. Sure. Well, we see the the COVID-19 pandemic as the most recent in really a whole series of alarm bells that have been ringing across the planet over the last several years, you know, going back to the you know, hurricane season in the Caribbean a couple of years ago with Maria and Irma that really wiped out several 
Caribbean nations and fire seasons that were really extreme in California and then the Amazon and Siberia, 50 million acres burned in Australia, then the worst locust outbreak in 70 years in Kenya that exacerbated a famine that was already associated with really severe uh, drought patterns. And then this year with the you know, extraordinary hurricane season again, and the hurricanes coming up through the Gulf this time, and you know, a lot of the American West on fire to the extent that the smoke plume extended all the way to here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and so we're seeing you know, all of these disasters that have human fingerprints all over them. And the COVID pandemic is just another in that series, obviously one that's very much gotten our attention as it should, but, um, you know, it's emergence uh, also has human fingerprints on it. It has a lot to do with how we interact with wildlife. And it's one of these sort of unsurprising surprises in the sense that um, it's been long predicted that uh, if we continue to move into wildlife habitat through extractive industries like logging and mining or agricultural incursions where we're clearing forest for agricultural fields or bushmeat hunting and the wild animal trade. And then these live animal markets like the one in Wuhan in China, um, that all of these uh, activities create opportunities for what are called spillover events where pathogens can move from animal populations into human populations. And often they move from one animal to another. So in the COVID example, uh, this new virus was probably in a bat. Um, it may well have mutated uh, and moved into uh, another animal, possibly a pangolin, uh, and then uh, jumped to a human population. And part of what made that possible was um, the bringing together of these different kinds of animal species in close proximity in a way that you don't see uh, in nature. Uh, and so in some ways it was a reflection of this very risky relationship we have with the natural world. Um, so its origin story um, is one of sort of our relationship to nature. But I think even more interesting, uh, there's a lot to learn from the pandemic itself that's relevant to planetary health. You know, we one of the things that we've seen uh, which is actually sort of hopeful, is the capacity for really extraordinary, global, very rapid, collective behavior change. And, you know, we've never seen anything like this before in, in human history, where most people all over the world have very quickly and quite radically changed how they're living. And that's the kind of behavior change that uh, we think it's going to be important in order to achieve this great transition that we, we need to collectively change the way we're living. So it's, it's actually encouraging to see that it's possible. We've also learned that nature recovers um, and regenerates. And so uh, when uh, industries are you know slowing down, when we're driving less, um, we're seeing air quality get much better, we're seeing uh, wildlife moving back into places where they traditionally used to be because there's less disruption. Um, none of those things are necessarily 
good things from the standpoint of the global economy, and I'm not advocating them. Obviously, the pandemic's been terrible with respect to lost lives and lost livelihoods. But but it's interesting to see in that context how quickly nature can recover. We've also learned that science matters, um, that you know, the countries that have taken the science seriously have averted a lot of mortality. And countries that have uh, sort of catalyzed skepticism about the science and poo-pooed the science uh, have tended to be places where the highest mortality uh, has occurred. So, um, you know, that's that's an important theme for planetary health as well. And finally, we see this opportunity around the stimulus packages. So over the next couple of years, you know, trillions of dollars of all of our tax money is going to be spent to sort of jumpstart global economies and uh, create foreign assistance packages for countries that have really been hammered by the pandemic. And that money um, has the opportunity to be a huge step forward in assisting this great transition and helping to develop the infrastructure for living differently on Earth. And so there's a real opportunity to hold our governments accountable to make sure that we're not using the money to sort of shore up an old system that is taking us down a path that we don't want to follow. At one point you say, knowing that massive change is possible gives great hope for a brighter future for planetary health. I think that's very, very well said. Uh, we're speaking uh, with the co-editor of a book called Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. Dr. Samuel Myers co-edited this along with uh, Howard Frumkin. Before we explore a few more specifics in the book, I, I want to share with you something that another guest on this program said uh, very recently about an entirely different book. I'm not going to go into what that book was, but it was written by a naturalist very much dedicated to the, 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 the well-being of the, of the world around us and, and, and so on. I'm, you would be very much on the same page. But this particular book was in a sense, much lighter in nature, in its, in its, in its framework and, and, it, and its approach. And, uh, and he talks in the preface about how he kind of almost felt the necessity of that to write a book like this and to share a book like this. And in the preface, he says, uh, from the outset, I was convinced that this, that this, uh, this kind of writing is not is, wasn't the place for calls for action. A straight diet of exposés and activism is a prescription for burnout. And he wanted this book that he wrote to be, in a sense, a bit of a refuge, not, not a distraction from the important work that must be done. But uh, I just think he's is saying something really kind of important there about how when we are taking on problems and concerns of such massive scale— and problems and concerns that are quite literally a matter of life and death. Uh, it is also uh, a, the kind of effort that, that, in some ways at least, can be difficult to sustain, at least on kind of an emotional level. Uh, when it comes to the work of you and others in the Planetary Health Alliance, I wonder how much you think about this or how much these kind of concerns come up about how one goes about this kind of work in such a way uh, in which the people doing the work uh, will not 
become exhausted or burned out or bitter or hopeless or uh, you know any number of of sort of emotional and mental pitfalls that I think can be part of this. So, you know, the the question about um, hope and how we foster it and how we avoid a sense of despair and burnout is a really important one and one that we think a lot about. And it's one of the reasons that we, you know, really wrote this book with an eye toward at least half the book being about solutions and the final chapter of the book being about painting a picture of an aspirational vision of the bright future that we could have if we get these things right. And, you know, I think in general the environmental movement has um, maybe been a little bit guilty of tending toward the sort of apocalyptic and, and catastrophic in the messages that we've communicated and not done a good enough job at talking about you know, what it would look like if we get these things right. And um, personally, I actually have a lot of hope. I think there's no reason why, you know, in a hundred years, my uh, grandchildren or their children couldn't live in a world where, you know, life expectancy and health metrics are as good as they've been in human history, where literacy rates continue to improve, where more and more people have been pulled out of poverty and into the middle class, which has been the trend over the last 70 years, where there's more um, equity across you know, gender and race than we've ever seen as a global society, but where we also are starting to get these environmental challenges uh, right. And, um, you know, there's no question that over the next 100 years we're going to have to decarbonize the energy economy. We're already making huge strides in doing that and moving toward renewable energy. Um, human population is likely to stabilize over the next 50 years or so and then start to fall, not through any disaster or any coercion, but simply through the natural demographic transition as more and more girls get educated and there's more economic opportunity for women and more access to family planning for couples who want it. Um, and as population falls, um, that helps to reduce some of this uh, pressure on the planet. And we're going to need to transition toward you know, producing food and manufacturing goods in ways that are you know, dramatically more efficient in their use of resources, but we know how to do that. We're going to need to embrace the circular economy in the business sector, but already we're starting to do that. And so it's easy to imagine a world a hundred years from now where with each passing decade, there's actually more breathing room for the rest of the biosphere, for the rest of life on earth. And really it's a question of what we do right now, what we do over the next generation to change the trajectory that we're on. And so that's why there's such an emphasis on solutions. But I think that when you lay out that more aspirational vision of where we're trying to go, it actually does counter um, the sense of despair and hopelessness that sometimes comes with really delving deeply into some of these questions. Hmm. Where we are right now in our conversation reminds me of something that would, on the surface, seem to have little, if anything, to do with, with the topic at hand. But 
I recently interviewed uh, an author on the, the very pressing uh, issue of, of racial justice and racism in America. And uh, this happened to be a, an author or a writer who at several points in their book uh, states rather bluntly that, uh, that almost nothing has changed when it, when it comes to this whole, whole, whole field or concern. And uh, that was something with which I, I took some issue uh, at the risk of, of seeming insensitive to the, the reality of, of racism that is, of course, so much with us. But it, it seems to me that disregarding the undeniable progress that has been made uh, is, is a mistake on a couple of different levels. Uh, and, and, and one of the mistakes is that it doesn't allow uh, the, the building upon progress which has occurred, past successes which have made a difference in many people's lives. It's, it's easy to disregard that if you do, didn't live at a time when, when the, there were very, when, when, when life was very, very different and might not be aware of the changes that have come. And it seems to me that what you are talking about in your book, Planetary Health, is, is probably similar in that uh, the victories and triumphs and reversals that uh, have made a difference must be acknowledged, not just for the sake of, of, of boosting our sense of hope, and, but, but that that is also a very real ingredient in continued progress. I mean, we need to know at least those relatively few instances in which we've done some things right. No, I think that's absolutely right. And um, again, I think in the environmental community, we've been a little guilty of not telling enough of the positive stories. I mean, I grew, I grew up and live in New England. And, you know, I'm, I'm always struck at how little play the positive stories get. You know, the well, we've been going to this lake since I was about five years old, and somewhere around, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, bald eagles started coming back to this lake, and they've been nesting there ever since. And the bald eagle population is way back, and ospreys are coming back to Cape Cod, and air quality is dramatically better in New England than it was you know, 30, 40 years ago. And uh, forests are much more extensive, and there's much more carbon carbon sequestration. And, you know, that, that doesn't belie the fact that globally those trends are probably going in the other direction. But it's important to notice that we woke up in, you know, 1962, thanks to Rachel Carson, to what was happening to bird populations from DDT. And we did something about it from a policy standpoint. And it worked. And, you know, the, the raptors are back, and, uh, or at least they're well on their way back. And, and that's a victory. And, um, you know, I think today we're in this odd place where, with one hand, we need to hold the depth of the urgency around the challenges we face and how much is at stake and not downplay um, how important it is to get this right. We're on a very, very dangerous course. But with the other hand, we need to hold the understanding that we can actually change that course and that there's hope if we get it right. And, and they're, they're slightly uncomfortable sort of bedfellows, these two, these two 
feelings that we're trying to hold on to at the same time, but they're both they're both part of the reality that we're in. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, with Dr. Samuel Myers about his book Planetary Health: Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. I want to make sure we have time to really delve into some of the specifics that you explore in this book. Uh, I want to say that the book, uh, at a glance, would appear to be something of a textbook. And uh, I almost hesitate to say that because I don't want that to be any kind of, of a, sort of a red flag for a listener uh, thinking that that's, that's not really the kind of book they would necessarily want on their shelf or, or might not think is appropriate to be on their shelf. But I think every, I was going to say every American, I think uh, every human being on the planet would benefit from reading this book. Uh, explain, in a sense, its format and the way in which it is structured very much as a textbook, is it meant to be, among other things, uh, a book that could literally be used as a textbook? You know, it, it's a book that also holds uh, that tension um, as well. And so, yes, it can be used as a textbook. It's meant to be a, a fairly comprehensive exploration of this very new field and to lay that field out. But it's also meant to be um, an introduction to, you know, uh, uh, the lay public to ideas that are, you know, fundamentally fairly intuitive, but that when taken together create sort of a frame shift for how we think about the world, where we start to collapse these divisions between the environment and environmentalists and uh, human health and well-being and realize that they're both sort of the same, you know, two sides of the same coin and that we can't really think about um, the environment and natural systems without thinking about human health and vice versa, that they're now, because of the scale of human activity, they're now very much interconnected. In terms of the sort of arc of the narrative, it's it's fairly straightforward at some level that um, the book uh, really explores how you know, you talked about the ballooning of humanity's ecological footprint, sort of how and why has humanity's ecological footprint ballooned so much? What are the primary drivers of that? And then we explore very briefly the different kinds of environmental change. So just a few pages on climate change, on land use change, on global uh, pollution, on water scarcity, on the big sort of natural systems that have been increasingly transformed by human activity. Uh, and then the, the next big chunk of the book is really going through each dimension of human health to explore how these different kinds of environmental changes are affecting things like infectious diseases and nutrition and mental health and the non-communicable diseases and even happiness, um, where we have a chapter. Uh, there are a couple of um, special sort of topic chapters, one on happiness and one on uh, the impacts of climate change on health, just because that's such a, um, a sort of important uh, topic in its own right. And then we, we pivot, and the whole second half of the book is really about solutions. So sort of having laid out uh, the diagnosis, we start to explore the treatment and um, looking at 
uh, sort of dimensions of human activity. So we talk about food systems and the, the enormous sort of rich terrain of solutions across uh, how we produce food and food waste and dietary change where we could really reduce ecological footprints from food production. And we talk about energy systems and we talk about cities and the built environment and we talk about chemistry and the need for green chemistry and the opportunities there. And uh, there are chapters on business and economics, uh, sort of economic theory and uh, some of the needs for uh, changing the way we think about uh, economic growth in societies, uh, and then having lo really looked at these different domains of solutions, there's a, a chapter on ethics and sort of what planetary health uh, teaches us about uh, sort of environmental ethics, uh, and then this last chapter that I mentioned that's really kind of bringing all of these solutions together and trying to sort of sketch out what would be uh, a really bright future if we got those solutions in place. Could I ask you a couple of questions about uh, a chapter that you specifically authored on food and nutrition, which I think is a, 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 a central concern of yours? Yeah. The, the title of the chapter is Food and Nutrition uh, on a Rapidly Changing Planet. Uh, this is a, a really fascinating uh part of the book in which you explore some of the ways in which we have managed to feed the planet perhaps better than we've ever managed to uh, feed the, 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 the world's population uh, ever before, but that raising more food uh, is not the entire answer or perhaps maybe the, the, the best answer or the complete answer. In fact, you lay out what you see as a triple, triple challenge that we as human beings face when it comes to how best to feed the inhabitants of our planet. Explain to our listeners what that triple challenge is. Yeah, well, so um, you're right. I mean, you know, one of the great public health successes of the 20th century was actually keeping up with global food demand despite this very, very, very rapid growth in the human population. And despite dire warnings to the contrary, in fact, we increased per capita food production despite this rapid population growth. And so that was a huge victory and saved you know, millions of lives and was in large part due to the Green Revolution. But when we look toward the future, um, a lot of the things that we did during the Green Revolution, you know, developing irrigated crops, new crop varieties, mechanization of farming, um, development of synthetic fertilizers, a lot of those things have kind of been done, and there's not a huge amount of room to extend them a whole lot further. And at the same time, you know, estimates are that we need to continue to increase food production at the same sort of historic levels that we have through the 20th century, uh, well into the 21st century in order to keep up with um, anticipated demand. And so the first challenge is how do we you know, keep up with this very, very rapidly rising demand? The second challenge is that global food production is probably the single biggest driver of global environmental change. So as we have um, extensified agriculture and put more land under cultivation and appropriated more water to irrigate our crops and use more energy 
in order to mechanize farming, we're having these huge impacts on the global environment. And um, agriculture and food production are the biggest driver of biodiversity loss, uh, of land use change, uh, of water scarcity, and they're a major contributor to climate change. And so there's a growing recognition that we can't just sort of scale up food production the way we currently are without really destroying what's left of the biosphere in the process. And so the second part of the challenge is we actually need to increase food production pretty dramatically while at the same time reducing the ecological footprint of food production. And then the third challenge is that all of these sorts of global environmental change I just talked about come back to actually there's sort of a feedback where they come back to impact our capacity to produce food. So essentially, we're busy changing all the biophysical conditions that underpin the global food system. And so climate change is producing real headwinds for uh, food production and reducing uh, crop yields. I do research on how rising carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are actually making food less nutritious. Uh, biodiversity loss, particularly loss of pollinating insects, is a big issue in reducing crop yields for some of the most important food crops for nutrition uh, and health. Uh, Ground-level ozone and, and air pollution actually reduce uh, crop yields. You know, water scarcity and land degradation are additional headwinds. And so, you know, as we transform these environmental conditions, they're actually making it more challenging to produce our food, and sort of that's the third level of this challenge. And so we, we have this um, sort of eye of the needle that we need to move through where uh, somehow we need to dramatically increase food production while reducing the ecological footprint of food production and do that despite these sort of environmental headwinds that we're encountering um, all at the same time. Now, the good news uh, is that our global food production system right now is massively inefficient. And so there's a huge opportunity, in fact, uh, to be much more efficient. And if you think about the sort of three uh, dimensions of that, you know, one is food waste. So globally, we waste somewhere around 30 to 40 percent of all the food that's produced. So that's just a massive uh, inefficiency in the system. And if we could significantly reduce food waste, which we're starting to, to learn how to do, um, that would make a big difference. The second domain is diet. So um, what we eat um, actually has a big impact on what the ecological effects of food production are. And um, there's been a lot of really interesting work recently on how much we could reduce um, ecological impacts by transitioning diets toward less uh, red meat in particular, uh, but in general more uh, plant-based uh, diets. And one of the interesting things about that is it sort of um, illustrates a theme that runs through uh, the book and through Planetary Health, which is that so many of the solutions that we're advocating are associated with really significant co-benefits, meaning they're, they're good for you in other ways. So yes, they reduce the ecological footprint, but in fact, that dietary transition to more plant-based diets would also pay huge dividends in global health. Um, and uh, we, we see that over and over again. 
Uh, and then beyond diet, the third part of, of the equation is how we produce our food. And there's just a very exciting sort of menu of uh, changes and solutions that are underway right now from you know, precision agriculture and the use of robotics and artificial intelligence to actually produce food much more efficiently with respect to you know, all of the inputs from land to water to agrochemicals uh, to energy, um, and then you know, embracing agroecological approaches, um, producing food in totally new ways like um, you know, these synthetic uh, proteins through protein fermentation, so things like um, synthetic milk and synthetic eggs, which are being produced now at you know, very, very, very small ecological uh, cost, things like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, which many of your listeners will know uh, well, which um, are plant-based meat products that have much lower ecological footprints. So there's, there's really a revolution going on today in how we produce our food. And so, again, I mean, I think there's reason to be hopeful that as, as daunting as the challenge, this triple challenge that I outlined sounds, um, in fact, there's reason to believe that we could achieve that if we really focused on it. Mm. My, my last question, and we just have a minute or so for, for an answer, I'm afraid, but I, I think one of the things that is so important in, in your book, Planetary Health, that explores so many interconnected uh, issues and concerns is that uh, in, in many cases, the most meaningful kind of change can take some time. Sometimes we're talking about decades. And of course, it's often tempting to think about uh, the short term. And it's also tricky when we're talking about concerns that are very urgent <laughs> to be approaching them with a sense of urgency and yet with an understanding that uh, the solutions sometimes unfold over many, many years. How would you have us sort of untie that conundrum? Well, I think we need to get started. Um, <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why uh, people are concerned about the clock starting to run out on some of these challenges, because it does take some time. Um, I also think that's why we have such an emphasis in the book on um, movement building and collective action. So um, many of the problems that we're talking about are what we would call power problems, not knowledge problems, where you have sort of entrenched special interests that uh, are profiting from the way we currently uh, live on Earth and don't necessarily want to give up um, those practices. And so it takes actually getting citizens to come together and find each other and take collective action to hold governments and industries accountable. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of these things do take time, um, although things are actually moving pretty quickly. So I guess I would say um, let's get started um, and let's come together to uh, take collective action to move toward this great transition that we outline. The book again is titled Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves, published by Island Press, edited by Howard Frumkin and my morning show guest, uh, Samuel Myers. Dr. Myers, thank you so much for giving the world this really important book. I hope many, many people will explore it and be inspired by it as I was. And I thank you for being part of the morning show today. Best wishes. Well. Thank you so much for having me and letting me meet some of your listeners. I appreciate it.